Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. This time of the year in America, our hearts and minds are directed to a a spot in New York City, in lower Manhattan, actually. I've been there a few times. It is a, a beautiful place. I love Manhattan. I love being there. I love interacting with the people. But there is also a sadness in uh, the Bowery in, in, in lower Manhattan, near where the Statue of Liberty is. And we will never forget that tragedy that we now call 9-11. Most of us are old enough to remember such things, and we know exactly where we were on that tragic day. I was sitting in my counseling office at our local church, staring blankly at a TV screen as the news unfolded. And I would imagine virtually anyone over 20 or over, let's say, 30 years of age, if you ask them where they were on that day, they could tell you too. The best word to describe my mental state was surreal. And honestly, it continues to boggle my mind to think how anyone could be so twisted that they would fly a plane into a building and kill 3,000 innocent lives. But then again, when I think of myself in my moments of, of misplaced faith, meaning I believe this is the thing to do, but, but it's really not a faith that would be situated in God's Word. And in those moments, it's really scary. Now, I know that none of us will do what those terrorists did, But we all can go down a regrettable path of misplaced faith. And and honestly, we all have gone down that path many times in our lives where we believe. Now, belief and faith are synonyms. We believe that in order to accomplish this, I need to do that. And of course, the thing that we want to accomplish is sinful. So we do something sinful in order to get that thing that we desire. That is misplaced faith that leads to a hard heart, believing what we're doing is the right thing. Now, of course, that begs the question, how can a heart become so hardened that we think what we're doing is okay, even though it's evident to everyone else that it's not okay and what we are doing is wrong? And so I'm not putting us, any of us, in the category consequentially of doing what those men did on 9-11. But conceptually, I'm putting all of us in that category because you know it's true. In a moment of insanity, meaning a sane mind, and of course the sanest mind of all is the mind of Christ, a sane mind would move out in a faith that is tied to Scripture. But, but a mind that is not sane, it is insane, it is outside of sanity, it would move forward in another kind of faith, another kind of belief or confidence, believing that I must do this in order to get that. That is a misplaced faith. And so conceptually, no, we're not in that boat of, of taking buildings, buildings down. But we are in that boat because we can sin. We will use sin uh, to accomplish things that we want in a moment of insanity. And that is a misplaced faith. It's a wrong-headed kind of faith. 
And so what I would like to do over the next few moments is just do a case study, bringing 9-11 down to where we live so that we can apply it to our hearts. Hopefully we can learn so that we will stop doing those things that we do, that we, we recalibrate our faith to something that is bibliocentric and that our consciences are in line with God's Word so that we, we act out in, in a morality uh, that glorifies God and, and blesses our community. If you want to read what I'm sharing with you, I would encourage you to go to lifeovercoffee.com. What you're looking for is 9-11 is a study in misplaced faith and hard hearts. There is a full transcript of, of what I'm about to share with you. You can print it off, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah, you can go down to the bottom of all of our articles, and there is a big print button right there in, in the middle, and you can click on it and, and print off a, a PDF on your computer, and then you could use it. It would be a great conversation for families. It would be a great conversation for a small group of friends. Again, you're looking for 9-11 is a, is a study in misplaced faith and hard hearts. Did you know that our entire lives move forward in faith? Meaning we do what we do because we believe. And again, belief is a synonym for faith. Belief, faith, confidence, those are synonymous words that, that convey this idea that in this moment of decision making, I believe this is the right thing to do to get whatever it is that we want. Now, that means that our, our motives and our methods could be right according to God's Word, or they could be wrong according to God's Word, but we start from a position of faith, whether it's biblical faith or not. Now, obviously, in all cases, I'm not talking about biblical faith, but I'm talking about a kind of faith that motivates us to move forward because we have a cause, we have a, a purpose, we have an agenda that what we want, we want it to come to fruition. Let me share with you a few examples of actions that we could take because we believe at the moment of insanity, meaning we believe at a moment when we are outside the mind of Christ. We still believe. We're still acting in confidence, but it's not tied to the mind of Christ. It's insane. And we believe that this is the best course of action. Now, as you think through this, of course, you could, you could add to this list that a momentary lapse of judgment, or what James would call double-mindedness. And so in some moments, we can decide and, and make the right decision because it's according to the Bible. In other moments, we can decide and make the wrong decision, and we find our lives that way. A double-mindedness. All of us have two heads. And I trust that you operate most of the time with the mind of Christ. I, I want to do that. I want to make my decisions by biblical faith, not some skewed faith that has this nefarious agenda because I want to accomplish something. Let me give you three examples of skewed faith. It takes faith to choose sinful anger. 
Sinful anger, the person believes in that moment that I can manipulate that person to get what I want. That is an act of faith, skewed faith I'm saying here. It takes faith to look at porn. I believe that if I do this, I will receive this feeling. I will accomplish this desire that I have in my heart. It takes faith to commit adultery. All three of those illustrations obviously is not biblical faith. Of course, it takes faith to be born again, and that is a faith that is properly aligned with God's Word. It's not that double-mindedness that James is talking about. Paul said it this way in 14.23 of Romans, for, for, whatever, uh, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, Paul was saying it that way, that everything that we do, we need to do it from a heart of faith. He's talking about biblical faith. So before your biblically trained minds blow a head gasket, let me explain. Paul was not thinking about anger, porn, or adultery or even flying planes into buildings. He was talking about secondary issues like eating meat or drinking wine or celebrating certain days. Paul taught his readers that whatever you do, you must do it from a heart of faith. You must believe that your actions are proper. Of course, proper in Paul's world means that your heart aligns with God's Word. He's saying that the essence of all decision-making is that, that all of your choices come from a belief system that says it's okay to do what you want to do. Faith to do something, right or wrong, is not Christian's exclusive, hermetically sealed domain. To believe and to act on that belief is part of being a human I believe that if I sit on that chair, that that chair will hold me up. I believe that if I eat that meal, that meal will satiate my body and I will be good to go for another few hours. All people operate by faith. It's how our minds work. We think, we believe, and we act on what we believe. We move forward in faith because we have removed doubt. I don't doubt that that chair will hold me up, and so I'm going to step forward on faith and and set my bum down on that chair because I have no doubt that it will hold me up, and it releases me to do what we do with confidence, with faith, that it is right. Of course, the problem is, is that we'll make the wrong decision if we base the doubt-removing process on a skewed presupposition or erroneous data. We believe it's right, though the Bible forbids such things. That's when we move forward by faith, removing doubt. But again, that faith is out of line with the Bible because the Bible forbids that. Those are those moments of insanity when we're outside of the mind of Christ, but we believe this is the right thing to do, and so we move forward by faith. Mercifully, God gave us an internal, internal moral thermostat that helps us guard against acting with wrong presuppositions and insufficient data. We can discern between right and wrong, even if we're not Christians. 
our conscience, our co-knowledge, it's our inner voice, and it monitors and it directs all of our actions. In fact, we read this in Romans chapter 2. Paul said it this way, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and, and conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The conscience is one of the soul's most essential elements because it governs how we think about and how we respond to good and evil in our lives and in our communities. Our conscience can accuse us. Our conscience can excuse us. What Paul had in view in Romans is a people group, a people group who did not know about the Old Testament. They did not have a Bible. They didn't know about special revelation, which is what the Bible is. And though they did not accept the Bible's truth claims, though they did not have a Bible, they did possess a moral thermostat. That moral thermostat is their consciences, and their consciences convince them of right or wrong actions. Their consciences accuse them or excuse them. This means of common grace to all of humanity is one of the most compelling reasons why none of us will have an excuse if we choose to reject Christ. Regardless of a person's relationship with Christianity, everyone is born with an internal wiring system that enables them to discern right from wrong. Even a child knows the difference between right and wrong because they have an internal moral thermostat. Even though they do not know what the Bible is, though they could not even read the Bible, they're similar to what Paul was talking about the Gentiles in Romans 2. They do not have the law, but they do the things contained in the law. And so Paul elevated the importance of the conscience, a warning that should motivate us not to tinker with another person's thermostat unwisely. And of course, the implication is clear. The conscience is malleable. A person will be in moral trouble if he bends his thermostat outside biblical parameters. We see this moldable, malleable idea in Paul's letter to Timothy. He called this the seared or the hardened conscience, the malleability of the conscience. Do you see what happened to those people who had a hard conscience? Once their conscience became calloused, they could do all sorts of evil practices because a hardened conscience ceases to condemn us of wrongdoing. A hardened conscience is like a, a calloused hand. It feels no pain. Paul said it this way in Timothy 4.2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This is 1 Timothy 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. And so if the conscience is not brought under the clarity and the scrutiny of God's Word in the context of a biblical community as illuminated by the Spirit of God, it will harden. And there are three means of grace to help keep our consciences calibrated. Our consciences are calibrated by a biblical community illuminated by the Spirit of God and is under the clarity and the scrutiny of God's Word. And with those three means of grace operating together, we can have a conscience that is in line with God's Word, meaning that all the decisions that we make by faith will be proper decisions. Of course, Paul knew we had to handle our consciences with the utmost care. That is why he talked about never eating meat in front of a person whose conscience accused them of wrongdoing. They believed, they had faith, they believed it was wrong to eat meat that was offered to idols. So Paul aimed to use wise and practical love when engaging those, those people with a miscalibrated faith. Paul taught how old Jewish traditions trained newly minted Christian believers. He did this in another place in Ephesians. He appealed to the Christians in Ephesus to change some of their ways, practices born out of an old belief system that kept them entangled in a former manner of living. These young converts in Corinth, these young converts in Ephesus, they still had faith in ideas that were not biblically sound. They had misplaced faith, but it was faith nonetheless. Faith is about what you believe is right, regardless of how that belief lines up with God's Word. The man will only fly an airplane into a building because he believes his action is correct. He has misinformed faith to do an ungodly atrocity. He is acting out of and proceeding from a twisted belief system. Now we understand how a terrorist will commit terror. But what if we make it more practical? Since none of us are going to fly a plane into a building, what if we bring it down from, from that atrocious, horrific event in 9-11 that we have seen many times and we grieve and we think, how can anyone do that? Did you know that, that we act according to our faith when choosing sinful anger towards someone? We believe it is right to do in that moment of heretical madness. When we're in our sin-filled anger episode, we have convinced, another word for faith, ourselves that we are right. And based on that false belief in that moment of insanity, we respond, we proceed accordingly. What we believe, as shown by our anger, 
and what the Bible teaches, they are at odds. After choosing sinful anger, the most important thing that we can do is recalibrate our beliefs to biblical faith. The worst thing we could do is to validate our conscience through blame shifting. That woman you gave me made me do that. Through justification, I am not guilty. Or rationalizations, this is how everyone does it. If we do not recalibrate our conscience to the teaching of God's Word, we will alter our moral thermostat to a new ethical standard. It'd be an unethical standard that will begin to condone sinful anger, and then it will be okay. The man who flew the plane into a building needed to adjust his deceitful belief system to God's Word rather than a belief system that condones such brutality. Regrettably, he calibrated his conscience to a pagan belief system, ignoring a God-given conscience, as we see in Romans 2, and God's inspired word. He ignored both of those. And it did not seem odd to him to kill 3,000 innocent people or to take his own life. He believed, he proceeded by faith, but not faith that aligned to a, a conscience that aligned with God's Word. And so this tragedy begs a few questions for us to ponder and to apply. How are we similar to these men? How have we convinced faith? We have convinced ourselves that our actions are correct. How many times have we justified what we did, sinfully did? Let me illustrate. On a few occasions when I have vented anger toward my wife, I immediately, at that moment, I started recalibrating my conscience to an alternate belief system, my way versus the Bible's way, by justifying my actions, declaring them not guilty. This recalibration process, it permits me, releases me to blame my actions on her or some other innocent scapegoat. Initially, my conscience would blare at me, pull up, pull up, telling me to stop being angry at my wife. A biblically informed conscience should do this. It should bring conviction. Conviction should rain down on our souls. The Spirit of God in the Christian should be grieved and quenched in that moment, and we should feel it, and that is the beauty of God's Word when illuminated by the Spirit of God. The perfect sweet spot is when our conscience, our internal moral belief system, and God's Word align absolutely perfect. That is the sweet spot. Because I chose to make my conscience incongruent with God's Word in the moment of sinful anger, insanity, my double-mindedness where I no longer am operating with the mind of Christ, my conscience will flex and it will adapt to my new morality, which is an immorality. And this new morality will permit me, release me to be angry, believing it is okay to be mad without remorse or repentance. If we do not bring our conscience under the Word's surveillance and God's Word, His management, it will drift from the truth while adapting to a rogue reality. 
and then it will seal itself, harden itself. Uh, this is again in Timothy 4.2, into a new belief system. Now at that point, we will act according to our newly minted, albeit evil, belief system. And this is what the Hebrew writer was was getting at in Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. It is a profound admonition. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your conscience. The misguided Muslim who wants to kill people has a different faith. It is a faith that is steeped in hatred for anyone unlike him. His conscience does not condemn him because he has saturated his conscience in an evil belief system. We see this idea in our country every day. That's why we cannot look down on the misguided Muslim. Uh, those people who hate blacks are like this misguided Muslim. Those people who hate whites are like this misguided Muslim. Those who hate gays are like this misguided Muslim. Those who hate Christians are like this misguided Muslim. Those who hate the other political party is like this misguided Muslim. And those who hate their spouses and those who hate their parents are like the misguided Muslim. This kind of faith is born from sinful heart cravings, what James was talking about in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. People like this blind themselves to the truth of God's Word by embracing another truth while affirming their actions as right. This is the right thing to do. When the Bible would say, no, their rightness and the Bible's rightness live incongruently, but they are free to do as they please because their conscience do, consciences do not condemn them. It's sobering to think how we can desensitize our consciences to such a degree that we can't sense the immorality that we perpetrate on others. This hardening concept is what happens to the porn addict. As an illustration, perhaps the first time he did porn, he felt a twinge of guilt. Maybe he repented or tried to repent, but he was unwilling to go all the way by letting others know about his sin. Rather than exposing his sin's complexity to God's sanitizing light, he went through a private repentance process that did not altogether pull his conscience in line with God's Word. This half-hearted process of worldly sorrow put down a, a thin layer of hardness over his inner voice. After looking at porn and masturbating a few times, the condem condemnation, it began to subside because he was layering his conscience. Perhaps he convinced himself by the intellectually dishonest argument that it was okay to masturbate, to justify himself. Or maybe he blamed his wife because she was unwilling to be intimate with him. Whatever his reasons were, they all served the same purpose, to harden his conscience to the point to where he could look at porn, he could masturbate, and not feel bad about what he was doing. He built a new belief system in his psyche, in his soul. 
It was an aberrant faith. His unique to him and adjusted faith made him free and clear to do porn. He had a hard heart. His moral thermostat went utterly off the biblical grid, and he could not or would not, probably a combination of both, see the truth. An addict is a man who is in full-tilt self-deception. If we do not feel deep conviction and personal brokenness over our sin— then one of the most productive things that we could do is to let others know about our sin. But that is complex because we have so justified ourselves that we would not let anyone know. In those moments, our conscience is too distorted to see what is happening and our wills are too weak to do anything about it. Sin will capture us. And in such cases, our problem is more than behavioral sinning. The deeper sin that I'm talking about is the deception that is going on inside of us. Our deceit is more complicated than the behavioral sin committed. There is probably nothing more frightening than living life while blind to the deceptiveness of the heart. My appeal to anyone is not to play around with this. Paul had a high view of the conscience. There is a reason his language sounded hyperbolic in 1 Corinthians 8.13. To fool around with the conscience is a matter of life and death. Our conscience is our highest level of morality. The Bible is the highest level of morality, but for each person it's our conscience that we cannot sin against. And as in we see in Corinthians chapter 8, their conscience told them not to eat that meat, and they had to obey their conscience because it is their highest level of morality. Of course, the idea here is that we want to bring their conscience in line with God's Word so that that is the perfect sweet spot. A conscience that is too high, too hard, too sensitive needs to be brought in line with God's Word. If it's not in line with the Word of God, we may be able to live with ourselves because we have readjusted our conscience, but others will have a hard time living with us. If you want to read a transcript of what I just shared with you, please go to lifeovercoffee.com. The title of it is 9-11. is a study in misplaced faith and hard hearts. Uh, you could probably just type in misplaced faith or a study in misplaced faith, and you get a full transcript. Before I wrap up, I, I do want to, to at least admonish myself, admonish us. If there is any sense that you may be hardening your conscience, there, there's a part of you that can hear this right now. It's not totally hardened. Would, would you share the truth about yourself with another person? Would you... Let that light come in. If there is a crack in the door, you haven't completely sealed things off at this moment. Would you share the truth about yourself with at least one other person, an appropriate person who has the competence to be able to help you? Will you let others speak into your life? Will you let others help you to readjust your conscience to biblical clarity and, and biblical norms? That is my call to action. That is it. That's the only thing that I'm, I have in the CTA. 
uh, is that if there's a crack in the door and there's a little bit of light, would you, would you share whatever it is so that you can recalibrate your conscience to God's Word? One of our Mastermind students was thinking on these things and, and responded by giving me an instructive step-by-step -step analysis of how we can warp our consciences and then put things back on track. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through this progression and then and then I'll be done. These steps that he sent me, I thought it was stellar, and you would benefit benefit from it. So I've added this at the bottom of this, this article. And, and my appeal would be to spend time reflecting on this progression. Here we go. Step number one, I have a good desire for intimacy with my wife. Number two, if I respond to my craving on my terms, then it becomes an evil desire. So now now I am lusting. I, my desire has turned into a self-serving craving. Number three, I see a shapely figure that looks appealing. Number four, I choose to gaze and lust after her. I look too long. I look a second time. Number five, my conscience tells me that I am morally wrong. That is a conscience that is in line with God's word. Number six, I justify my actions. I declare myself not guilty. I say, it's okay. Number seven, in time, a hardening process of my conscience begins. Number eight, by justifying my actions, I become convinced, a word for faith, that I am doing nothing wrong. And so now I am free and clear to continue in my sin. Number nine, if I do not recalibrate my conscience to God's word, I will continue on in my sin. Number 10, I'm now operating out of a new, though false, belief system. Number 11, I read my Bible and I feel conviction that light is coming in the door. Just a little bit of light, the door is not fully closed. Number 12, my conscience begins to recalibrate by responding correctly to God. Now that crack in that door is widening a little bit. Number 13, I confess my sins and begin walking out a repentance process. Number 14, I'm now turning from my sin, that 180-degree turn. Number 15, I continue putting off old habits while hoping to put on new ones, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 4. Number 16, I must continually be in the Word of God to have a biblically informed conscience. And then finally, number 17, I must have ongoing care and accountability to avoid being deceived like this again. And so there is a 17-step progression of how I got into it and how I can come out of it. This is 9-11 is a study in misplaced faith and hard hearts. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.